Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You can find us on the Times Radio app, where you can also download lots of other Times and Sunday Times podcasts. You can find us at times.radio on your smart speaker or on your digital DAB radio. Maybe you've got a new radio for Christmas. Uh, now is the time to retune it to Times Radio so you can listen to me every morning. Well, since we last spoke on the podcast, uh, we've officially left the EU, but we can't even leave the house. So uh, here we are again. I'm broadcasting from home. I'm recording from home. We are... Um, you know, everyone is doing it. Everyone is doing it. Uh, so we're all in this together. I'd like to make clear that my being at home has got nothing to do with the story that was in the Times today. Tommy Tuck's in demand as workers keep surgery hidden. Apparently demand and interest in clandestine breast reductions and Tommy Tuck's has jumped by more than 500%. Because, you know, if you have the work done, you can then uh, uh, recover at home without anyone realising what you've had done. Weight loss procedures are in particular demand. Apparently. So I'd just like to make clear, I've not had any work done. Uh, although after having had a week off when the most exercise I got was walking to the fridge, I'm ruling nothing out at this stage. Right then, let's get on with the podcast. Coming up, uh, our big thing today. Do you speak political ease? Do you know you're spad from your Mandarin? You're levelling up from your level playing field. We've got some exclusive new YouGov polling, which suggests that most of the public have no idea what any of this means. And frankly, who can blame them? We will dig into the polling and we'll also speak to some political communicators about how you get politicians to talk like a normal human being but first our columnist panel it's monday so it must be liberatory that's libby purvis and rachel sylvester let's start the year as i fear we may well have ended it uh talking about uh lockdowns and so on uh, it, it feels libby like another national lockdown is inevitable we're sort of almost if you're in tier four you're basically there already Yes, we do seem to be there already. Um, I mean, it's well, what I think it's a matter of closing a couple of gyms in Liverpool, isn't it? And possibly a touch of curfew. But I tell you, what is fascinating me, Matt, is the dog that does not bark in the night time, which is Rishi Sunak. Because in August, the Chancellor was worried enough about the economy and um, so on, and, you know, with the 30,000 jobs lost last year, even with furlough in hospitality. And he must be a damn sight more worried now. But he somehow isn't being allowed out to make any economic case as the government blithely moves on, saying could be another three, four, five months. 
Um, and the economic case also affects the death rate. But we're not hearing from the Chancellor lately much, are we? That is a good point. That is a good point. Have you any idea where the Chancellor is, Rachel? <laughs> Absolutely no idea. And, and also, I should think he doesn't, he's not that keen to talk about his ETERT to help out scheme, which didn't seem to have <laughs> helped um, the lack of spread of the virus. Um, but I think Libby's absolutely right. We seem to be heading for lockdown two, three, whatever it is now. I mean, already, lots of schools are closing. Even the schools that are supposed to be opening are not closed, are not opening. Uh, you know, it's absolute chaos in the education system. Um, a huge frustration for parents as well as teachers and children. You know, there's a, basically children are going to have lost a year of their education after this is over. Uh, the next thing is going to be the exam system. I don't see how GCSEs and A-levels are going to be able to go ahead, even though the government's insisting that they will, um, because there's just going to be such unfairness between some children have had missed weeks and weeks and weeks of learning and others have um, not at all. And there's huge gaps between the private and the state system, as we've heard in the past. Um, but it just feels as if the government is always doing the right thing, but two or three weeks too late. Um, and and there's these constant mixed messages about what's what's going to happen. The, in the, the schools, I've been looking at for my column tomorrow, you know, just before Christmas, government actually took various local councils to court to force them to open. And it's now, you know, then done a U-turn to say <laughs> most not... schools should close, except in certain areas. Then now those areas too will close. It's, it's utter confusion which causes Libby, huge anxiety. You've, uh, Libby, you've reported on uh, education for a long time. Uh, have you ever known an education secretary quite like Gavin Williamson? No, no, not not since some mothers do have them, really. Uh, <laughs> who he's being compared to by the mayor of Liverpool, among many others. Uh, no, it's and, and the other thing which bothers me is the testing regime in schools. I talked to a headmaster the other day, who was kind of head in hands at the absolutely ridiculous government instructions as to how to run the testing system in schools, like you know, shut thirty children in one room, you know, test them, you know, and then fifteen minutes later release them into another room of thirty. Well, and and you know. And, and then completely ignoring the fact that a lot of them are out on the school bus. Uh, he, he doesn't see the, the testing thing sort of working at all. He says none of these people have ever been in a school. You know, what is going on here? So it, there is a huge problem with education not having been thought through properly by anyone who knows anything about education. And that is always a problem in British government is that ministers sort of come and go so fast uh, as a rule that, uh, that they never really get much of a grip on anything or talk to anyone who matters. So I think uh, I think the the schools are, as Rachel says rightly, I long to read her tomorrow, is, is just one of the huge problems. I would say, for heaven's sake, just say two, three weeks, no schools, you know, try and provide everything you can for the families who then can't work and, uh, you know, then reboot the whole thing better organised. I think you're doesn't... absolutely right, Libby, about the testing thing. I was speaking to um, one of the experts on these lateral flow tests that they're bringing in to supposedly get the schools open in a couple of weeks um, last night. And he he was saying, actually, it's, it's completely terrifying. They're only 40% accuracy when they're used in the way they're going to be used in schools for this kind of mass screening programme. So what that means is 60% of people who get a negative result. In fact, you know, they don't know whether that's accurate or not. They may, in fact, have COVID and then go out back into the classroom, spreading it around 
um, and then back on the school bus, back to their families. It, it's just not credible at all, this system, and actually rather frightening and dangerous. Mass, mass dangerous it, it sort of spreads it more quickly. Yeah. As I understand it, mass community screening um, is not approved of by the World Health Organization, and there's some fantastically frightening stuff in the British Medical Journal about what a failure it was in Liverpool, how mass testing simply is not the answer. I mean, moving the va I'd rather the vaccination was being moved ahead with more speed and efficiency than the testing. Mm. I think even in schools, actually, I think definitely they should be vaccinating teachers. And I don't know what you think about this, Libby, but I think there's a case for vaccinating um, secondary school children, you know, certainly ahead of, um, you know, people like me who can work from home quite easily. I think, uh, you know, the, the secondary school children, at the very least, to get the schools open, the only way you're going to do that safely is the vaccine in the end, I think. And you've you've but written about the vaccine in your vaccination stuff column bothers today. Me and, yeah, there's, there's sorry, Libby. No, no, I was going to say you've written about the, yeah. the vaccine in your column today and wanting sort of much clear a much clearer sense of how many vaccines need to be delivered before we can get out and about and resume some sort of uh, um, normality. It it feels like a figure that must exist. Well, it was Chris Whitty who said it at the select committee, said there will be a point when enough are vaccinated to end the imminent risk of the NHS collapsing, overwhelmed. And government should be looking at those figures and sort of saying, right, when we get to such and such a figure, when we get to such and such a figure, because at this point, as Whitty said, it's a government decision. All governments have got to assess risk. And that means they will have to accept a certain number of deaths, a certain number of illnesses. It will just happen, as it always does uh, in, in any crisis. But it's a government job once the NHS is no longer likely to be overwhelmed. But can I just add one other thing, which isn't in my piece today, about vaccination? There is a curiosity about it in that some very old people living near me who are perfectly healthy and fit and you know one of them swims in the sea every day and so on and they basically travel nowhere and see nobody and he's been vaccinated and yet a, a paramedic who has to spend time stuck in ambulances for hours with ill people they are not getting vaccinated first you know a, a health service administrators are being vaccinated ahead of them in, in some cases and it just seems there isn't enough logic going on as to who is at risk and i agree with rachel about secondary school children i think it would do no harm uh you know let them let them mingle let them run around together you know let them be vaccinated earlier before some of the technically most vulnerable but that is a very unpopular thing to say and i'll just be in trouble for it <laughs> well, it's all it's all been done on on virtual on the basis of age, hasn't it? So teachers are nowhere mm. on that priority list at the moment, which seems insane to me. And children are not even planned to be vaccinated at all. Um, and it just feels that it feels that edu education and children are at the bottom of every single priority list. And that's partly because, as you were saying earlier, Libby, they've got such a useless advocate in the education secretary. I suppose also the the um, uh, at least if you do it by age, it's nice and clean cut. And once you start getting into, well, you know, well, if you're going to do teachers, maybe should we be doing people who work in supermarkets? And then do you do people who work in supermarkets before you do teachers? Um, and, you know, you, you get into a sort of gradient of uh, um, virtuousness or usefulness to society or whatever it might be. And you end up with a competition. If you just do it by age, no one can compete on that. That's true, but but reality isn't as simple as that, is it? And it just feels like you're getting some lots of perverse outcomes that aren't necessarily helping in the end the country. 
because um, children, for example, are running around infecting lots of people. Um, whereas, you know, perhaps the elderly person who's who's just shut at home isn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's all very common. Well, hope, hopefully they're going to roll out the vaccine so quickly to everyone that this will become an entirely academic uh, discussion. Um, it's not as if Boris Johnson has other things to worry about. Uh, yesterday he said that there should be a 40-year gap uh, between <laughs> constitutional referendums. How long do you think he can hold off on uh, uh, allowing a, another Scottish independence referendum for Libby? Well, the really cheeky thing would be for him to say, OK, vote now, vote tomorrow, if you reckon you can really hack it alone. You lost me? You got me back? We, we did, but then you're, you're, you're now back. We can now, we can now hear you. What do I you know. think, uh, Rachel, when should uh, or how can Boris Johnson, particularly if, as expected in May's elections, if, uh, as the poll suggests, the SNP do get a majority and a mandate on a manifesto uh, demanding for uh, a second independence referendum, how can Boris Johnson resist that? I, mean, I, I he think can. He it's just quite hard no. in the long term because it's it's back to the sort of Brexit referendum issue. You're going to have this clash of mandates. You're going to have a democratic vote among Scots in favour of a, a referendum effectively if the, if the SNP get a big majority. Um, and then a national parliamentary Westminster vote uh, with uh, unionist parties in the majority. So again, a bit like with the Brexit referendum, there's this clash of mandates. But the problem for Boris Johnson is that something really major and fundamental has changed since the last uh, Scottish uh, independence referendum, which is Brexit. And majority of Scots weren't in favour of Brexit. Um, so, it, you know, they were promised, we were all promised we were going to take back control. It doesn't feel like that for them. Um, I think that that what really needs to happen is there needs to be a proper discussion about what independence would mean. And before there is a referendum, whenever that comes, it needs to be absolutely clear in a way that it wasn't for Brexit and it wasn't really at the last Scottish referendum what independence would mean, what currency would be used, would Scotland be able to rejoin the EU and if so, on what terms. The actual nitty-gritty of the detail that once you look at it, becomes much more complicated for people. And it's at the moment, the SNP have, are winning all the emotional arguments. Um, you know, they, they it is basically, it's a version of take back control that the Brexiteers used at the Brexit referendum. But I, I think the government um, and perhaps the Labour Party as well need to say, look, let's work out what what you'd be voting for if there was another referendum because it, I think it looks increasingly likely that there will be one at some point over the next two or three years. Yes, I think you could be you, you could well be right. Uh, we'll have to go through all that maybe one again. Uh, before I let you go, uh, your boring news, Rachel. Uh, uh, Libby, in fact, you replied to my uh, tweet this morning saying that you'd finished another jigsaw. Any other boring news you want to share with us? Uh, the, the cat um, did uh, did an atrocity on a duvet this morning in the guest room, <laughs> and I'm just about to wash the duvet cover. Is that boring enough? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's almost dangerously close to being interesting. Uh, what about you, Rachel? Well, I think this is very exciting for me. But we've got the tree surgeon coming tomorrow to prune the big eucalyptus tree in our back garden, which is a major event in our household, but actually probably quite boring. <laughs> we had a tree cut down uh, earlier in the lockdown and it was very exciting because they sort of shimmy up it with a you know, rope and crampons and all that and sort of just lopped it down from the top. That was Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read them both the Times. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. To do that, get yourself a Times subscription for goodness sake. You can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, do you speak politicalese? Spad, Mandarin, levelling up. Do you got any idea what any of that means? It's words bandied around by everyone in Westminster all the time without any real thought about whether any, any normal person has any idea what they are talking about. Well, today we're going to lift the lid on how much of us, any of us, really understand when politicians open their mouths. In a moment, we'll speak to some political operators about their battle to try and get politicians to speak like normal people. But first, we've got some exclusive polling from YouGov uh, to find out exactly what the public does and doesn't understand. I'm joined now by their head of data, uh, Matt Smith. Hi, Matt. Hi there, Matt. Thanks for having me. No, no, no. It's really properly fascinating, this. Um, so talk us through what... Because uh, <laughs> this is one of these things where you know, we try to make politics a bit more accessible to everyone. But uh, at times, it is like another world of people talking to each other um, using the same sort of complicated uh, jargon. So uh, explain uh, what you found when you put some of these these terms, spad and Mandarin and so on, uh, to the test. Sure. So, yeah, as you say, this is absolutely one of those instances where you can see the way in which the Westminster bubble truly is a bubble. Uh, so we put... Um, 11, 11 terms to the British public that are often used in political discourse uh, to see how well understood they are. So three of them are understood by the majority of people. So you've got the 
deficit at 70 percent uh the concept of a level playing field at 69 percent and then what tariffs are at 64 percent although obviously given how prominent all of those terms have been um that's still perhaps a slightly uh you know the fact that one in three people don't know what that means is still you know vaguely concerning if if it is your job to communicate what these are and then of course at the other end is the stuff that is truly bubble talk so ubi (laughs) which is uh, for the many people who don't know, an acronym for universal uh, basic income, which is the idea that the government will pay everyone a sort of uh, a wage simply for for being alive almost, and then any extra money they will earn on top of uh, any employment will uh, bring in money on top of that. Um, that is understood by just 8% of people. And in fact, 81% of British people have, have never even heard the term uh, at all now, perhaps that that matters slightly less because uh, that policy is so far away from being implemented that you know it, it may as well be in another timeline. Uh, likewise, uh, sunlit uplands. Uh, only ten percent of people uh, say they uh, they understand what this means. And again, given the pandemic at the moment, this too is so far away <laughs> that perhaps that doesn't matter either. But um, then also uh, a very a very popular word in in Westminster itself, of course, is SPAD, which is uh, the contraction of special advisor. Uh, and uh, despite this, only ten percent of people uh, know what this term means. And in fact, eighty-two uh, percent of Britons have, have literally never heard this being used. Um, so as we can <laughs> now, this see, is, uh, that that was. I mean, I, 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 in a way, maybe it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's the sort of thing. SPAD is something that gets knocked around all the time. Uh, SPAD being short for special advisor, but then it, you also sort of need to explain what a special advisor is. It's sort of it can be a spin doctor, so a, a politically appointed. Uh, press officer for a minister or uh, a policy expert who works in the government. But they're all sort of political rather than civil servants. Um, uh, but the, these things get bandied around all the time. Um, and the one, my particular favourite is Mandarin. Because uh, I've once heard someone describing, I think it was Mark Sedwell, as the Mandarin's Mandarin, uh, which um, doesn't mean anything to anyone. And Mandarin being used as a... It's when jargon, which is supposed to make things clearer, actually makes things less clear. So using Mandarin to mean top civil servant, whereas actually top civil servant is clearer than than using Mandarin. Was there any of these that surprised you, Matt? Well, I mean, not really, to be honest. This this is um, this is one of the things I think that when you work in public opinion, uh, you're, you're <laughs> I guess you're a sort of step isolated from the Westminster bubble in doing so, and and so you you, you come to see that this sort of thing is actually fairly common. I think one of the things I would always say to people if they wanted to understand um, the British public is, uh, you know, the kind of people who operate in the in, in the bubble anyway is is simply that they pay they pay less attention to the news than you. It's as simple as that. I was looking at some Ofcom figures um, today and and they suggested that uh, uh, people spend maybe 15 minutes a day looking at uh, watching news and then separate figures from City University suggesting that uh, they might spend 30 seconds on a newspaper website on on a daily basis. So yes, the simple fact of the matter is that people people have lives, they have families, they have hobbies and they, they cannot dedicate uh, enough of their time to paying attention to the going on in Westminster as um, people who, for whom it is their job to do so. So I think the key, the key to uh, understanding the British public in that regard is, is to expect them to, frankly, um, not know anything about what you're talking about, because the odds are they don't. 
<laughs> and it, it, it's where that becomes it's sort of exclusionary, doesn't it? If people think, and I had this all the time, I was just um, uh, five years ago today, I started writing the Red Box email and I was, you know, it was an email about what's going on inside the Westminster bubble. But I was always very conscious when I was doing it uh, to um, think about people who didn't know you know who the chancellor was necessarily, or what a spad was, or or, or whatever. And it, because um, politics should, you know, everyone should be following it and interested in it and that sort of thing. Um, but if if we use this strange language all the time, then it becomes exclusionary, doesn't it? Absolutely. So, I mean, all industries have their own internal terminology and jargon, and, and obviously politics and journalism is no exception. But the, the obvious difference between uh, journalism and, and other industries is, is that uh, there is a sort of inherent obligation to um, have people understand what it is you're actually talking about. That's, that's the purpose. I mean, I guess it depends to a certain extent. And I do worry about this sometimes as, as to whether some journalists consider it their, to be their job to inform like the whole public, literally anyone, no matter how much they've been paying attention, or if it's their job to sort of um, inform people who are interested and the kind of people they engage with and, and, and arguably perhaps the kind of people that read their newspaper specifically, rather than someone who might not be spending so much time paying attention to the news. It's one of the things that we definitely see at the Times where um, the sort of the explainers, uh, the Q&As, the analysis uh, are often much better read on uh, on the Times website because people want to just be walked through some of the issues sometimes rather mm. than sort of picking through, well, I don't know who that is or why that might be and um, uh, why that is significant and all that sort of thing. One thing that we should point out is that 70% said they knew what level playing field meant, which I was very surprised about. But I wonder whether they, uh, given this was in the context we thought of Brexit uh, trade talks and level playing fields and non-divergence on regulations and all that sort of stuff. It's possible that, that people have heard level playing field in a broader sense of just, you know, fairness. Yeah, I think realistically, that's almost certainly what what, what it was. Uh, it's one of those things that's tricky to uh, to divorce uh, a con the context of a term people have actually heard, uh, even when it's being used in a, in a, in a different circumstance. Uh, I mean, it is properly fascinating when you've got uh, only a third of people know what Boris Johnson means when he talks about uh, levelling up. Then another 24% have heard it, but they're not sure what it means. Another 12% have heard it, have got no idea what it means. Uh, and then another third have never even heard, you know, supposedly the Prime Minister's yeah. big flagship uh, political uh, strategy. Um, uh, similarly, One Nation, we keep being told he's a One Nation Tory. You know, a third of people have never even heard of it. Only a third know uh, what it means. Um, and what I'm, what's uh, exciting, we're hopefully going to do this again with you, Gov. So if you've got any other uh, things that you've... Uh, Political jargon, just, oh, I've got no idea what that means, and I bet loads of other people haven't. Get in touch with us, and we're going to get Matt to poll it uh, so we can find out actually what the government thinks. So you can email us, studio at times.radio, or text us at 8722, start your message with the word times, or you can tweet me at Matt Jolly or at Times Radio. Uh, Matt, really good to speak to you. Happy New Year. Um, and you. Uh, no doubt uh, we will come again to uh, you, Gov, to find out what um, what the country really thinks about a whole range of issues. OK, so, yeah, we're looking at this exclusive polling that you, Gov, uh, did for us into the the terms, the political terms that make no sense to anyone. Words like spad, only 10% of people know what that means. Sunlit uplands, one of the Prime Minister's favourite phrases, only 10% of people know, know what that means. Uh, culture war, only a third of people know what that means. Only a third of people know what levelling up or one nation uh, means levelling up is obviously the Prime Minister's promise to uh, bring 
poor areas of the north up to the standards of the south. Uh, one nation, well, but one nation is one of those terms which is used by almost everyone. Tories and I think even at one point uh, Ed Miliband uh, tried to wrap himself in the cloak of one nation. It just means you, you like all parts of the country, I think. Anyway, well, maybe we can find out from our next guest, some people who've, who've grappled with precisely this, some political communicators. James Frayne uh, formerly worked in political communications. He's now a partner at Public First, uh, a uh, public research uh, business. Hi, James. Morning. How are you? Oh, very good. Oh, very good. Uh, nice to have you with us. Happy New Year. Uh, then we've got Katie Perrier, who was uh, the Director of Communications in Number 10 for Theresa May. Hi, Katie. Good morning. Can you hear me? Uh, oh, we can. You're there. Excellent. Uh, and finally, Rob Hutton. Rob Hutton, a, uh, a lobby journalist of uh, long standing and also author of Romps, Tots and Boffins, which I've got on my shelf above me. The Strange Language of News. Rob, we thought we'd, you'd be perfect to, to help us pick through the gobbledygook of politicians and journalists. Hi, Rob. Hi there. <laughs> Thanks. Right, Katie, I want to start with you first as someone who's been in uh, number 10. And uh, particularly because you've got sort of two worlds, if you like. You've got the political world of using slogans like, you know, currently it's levelling up. I think when you were in number 10, we heard a lot about jams and just about managing. But then you've also got the gobbledygook that comes from civil servants and officials uh, sort of all being fed with the machine as well. So describe your day in number 10 as director of communications in Downing Street, trying to sort of make your, wade your way through all of this gobbledygook. Well, first of all, just because I've worked in Westminster pretty much all my adult life doesn't mean to say I knew all of those acronyms. And so when I worked in government, uh, I used to have to go around saying to people, you have to explain what you're talking about, because just I've never worked in government before. And so you don't just assume anything. Um, And often um, I would have to wade my way through documents. What it is, is you're surrounded by extremely clever people. Uh, and you're surrounded by people that are very bright, but also they love to play the Westminster game. They like to think that they're in the West Wing, some of them. And so they like to talk in a language which just doesn't make any sense to anybody. Um, and so it's my job often. I mean, if I think back to um, when Theresa May signed the withdrawal agreement to leave the European Union, um, everybody was messing about with the words. Everybody was trying to make things really complicated. And I just said, look, all I want is a picture. All I really want is just a picture of Theresa May signing the agreement. And I'll pump that out to everybody and it'll run in all the papers tomorrow and it was the simplest thing but nobody really thought so that that was enough everybody just thought that we had to pump out loads and loads of words pages and pages of documents lots of detail and of course that's not always uh, appropriate there's sometimes when you do need to go into the detail when you are running a government and department in charge of comms on behalf of the prime minister but often we do make it far too complicated for ourselves and there are times when um we've got to realize as what you were discussing earlier that not everyone's listening and not everyone's watching Okay, so Rob Hutton, as a journalist, you're on the receiving end uh, of all of the gobbledygook coming out of, obviously not when Katie was there, but when other people have done this job in industry. What do you see as the job? Uh, Matt Smith from uh, YouGov was just discussing this. You know, there are some political journalists who sometimes just report on politics for the benefits of other other political journalists. What do you see as the job of political journalists? Um, Well, I I was in a slightly unusual position. I was covering British... Britain as a foreign correspondent for uh, an international, largely American audience. And so we had to explain everything, which actually is, it, it is an incredibly good discipline. I mean, even I think we sort of we got to agree that we could use MP as an abbreviation for Member of Parliament. And we got to agree that we could use Chancellor of the Exchequer. But actually, even Chancellor, if you're sort of in Hong Kong, the German Chancellor runs the country. The British Chancellor would just like to run the country. 
it, it's not it's not always obvious what these words mean. I, I I'd be interested to know how many people in Britain actually know the job definition of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Three words that don't really contain an explanation. I suppose it's because we like brevity as well. You know, there's a, there's a you don't want too much detail. Um, and it, you sort of, if someone's got five pars into a story about the budget, you sort of hope they know who the chancellor is. Yeah, you do. And you do. You, I think particularly actually with Brexit stories, you tended to forget that not everyone has been following every spit and cough of this. Um, I mean, you know, now writing about COVID, you sort of assume that everyone knows what COVID is. But there was about a month where we saw sort of where where every mention of COVID, you had to put comma, the virus that started in China that, that caused, you know, the, the sort of um, if you don't know what COVID is, you're a very lucky person. But we we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not going to bother catching you up anymore. Um, uh, I think some of the time, though, it is done to exclude. And I mean, some of this language. I remember the first time I heard the expression "spad," it was somebody i just literally just started as a political journalist and somebody who didn't very much like me and wanted to embarrass me said how many spads do you know and i thought i, I don't i do do i know any spads what is, what is <laughs> spad? I, sort of eight i you know that's a hundred um uh it so some sometimes this is very deliberately done to uh to push people out and sometimes it's being done because they don't actually want you to understand what's going on. I mean, I take what Katie was saying, but a lot of government comms on Brexit has been about obscuring the re the reality of Brexit is that you're making it more difficult to do the thing that you do at the moment, in the hope that some other things that you do might become easier. But uh, Michael Gove, I was checking this the other day, Michael Gove talking about lorry parks in Kent, uh, where everyone's going to have their document checked. Every time he's asked about it, you know, he, he says it's, it's going to be lots of extra jobs and investment. And you think, well, really, we're talking about traffic here, aren't we? I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, talking about the, the jobs and investment going back as far as Junction 5, um, uh, <laughs> cause, causing delays of, of, of eight hours. Um, it's it, So... But they don't want to talk about traffic. They don't want to talk about delays. They don't want to talk about bureaucracy. They don't want to talk about red tape. So, um, so on on Brexit, there's been a, a, a deliberate attempt to obscure. And actually, level playing field is really interesting because level playing field is how the Europeans describe we want you to stick to our rules after we've left. Now, I, I don't think that you would find members of the ERG, another bit of jargon there, um, pro-Brexit Tory <laughs> MPs, very pro-Brexit Tory MPs, I don't think you'd find them talking about level playing fields so much because they see level playing field as a as a European imposition. So everybody does this. But who could be against the level playing field? Who could be against one nation? Which means which is totally meaningless. I mean, it's just <laughs> a, you know, sort of the idea that the idea that Boris Johnson is a one nation prime minister, unlike previous prime ministers who sort of thought the North could go and get stuffed, frankly. Well, you lead us very nicely onto this question of levelling up. In a moment, we'll speak to James Frame. But um, on the question of level, so 33% claim to know what levelling up means. But we, in our uh, most recent focus group, um, every month here on Times Radio, we get James Johnson, who used to do polling for Theresa May and Dash, uh, to carry out a focus group. And we spoke to some voters in Scunthorpe. And James asked them what levelling up meant. No, don't know what that means. No idea. Levelling up? No. Why not what? So Boris Johnson's talked about levelling up. Is that making the North and the South get the same wages and... Oh, bringing the wages like up to £10? 
Ten pounds an hour. Or hey, playing field. Yeah, was that something to do with that? Is it the? Um, is it fetching the north and the south up because the north has been exposed yeah. as uh, like a bad place and the south is get gets the uh, the better treatments. The north doesn't, and uh, leveling it up is is fetching the north and south in parallel. Is that right? I don't know. Ah, but it's pretty close. Um, it's, it's probably as good as an explanation as you can get from anyone in government. James Fain uh, from Public First. If you were advising the government now, what would you make of that um, response from, from voters? Does it matter if voters don't know what levelling up means, if the if the levelling up just happens uh, and they start to see, you know, jobs and growth and, and all that sort of stuff? I think it, it definitely it definitely matters. It's um, Why would you just not use simpler language? I mean, it's been clear for months and months and months and months that the term levelling up is just lost on everybody uh, and they've persisted with it and there's an argument that you occasionally hear and this was this this argument was used a lot during the covid communications discussion around you know about the point that well if you keep talking about things in a particular way let's take the r rate at some point people just sort of they come to understand what its meaning is even if it's sort of a complicated term they couldn't express exactly what it meant at some point it takes on its own meaning um, I just don't agree with that at all. I think, what, why would you not just make everything absolutely as simple as as you possibly can? Um, and I think on, on levelling up specifically, they should just be talking about about it in a completely different way. Um, so, yeah, I think it does make, um, make a difference. I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, I would say actually politicians, elected politicians, are actually not too bad at the language that they use. And the, the language that are used by civil servants or that are used in the corporate world where there's much less contact with ordinary people um are that they are far worse i think so actually yeah i know we're all sort of bashing mps on on this call but they're, they're really relatively speaking not too bad <laughs> Actually, not too bad. Um, uh, Katie, I remember having a conversation with you when you were in number 10, where you were trying to get people to stop using jams, the just about managers. Manage but, it, but it was one of those things that, that you, it was the, the genie was out of the bag. The, the genie was out of the bag. What does that mean? <laughs> the cat, the genie was out of the once bottle. People, That's what once people know that you have a name for it, there's endless mickey taking uh, and people don't take it seriously. Uh, the, the whole idea of just about managing was those who go to work, they're on their gerbil will of life, they're not getting anywhere far, but they're law abiding, they're working hard. Sometimes they've got two jobs and they're doing the right things, but they're not getting anywhere fast. And that was the kind of issue that we were polling and people were feeding back to say to us, I'm doing all the right things in life, but I want better for my children. But the minute you start putting labels on things, it's kind of game over and you've got to start, you've got to drop them as quickly as you introduce them. <laughs> and so I think that James is right, that MPs are better at this than maybe civil servants or special advisors. But I would say that on occasion, you do find the odd MP that likes to bring in military um, connotations and, and <laughs> because of their previous career or something and I'd be sitting there thinking I don't know whether or not to duck for cover at this point or whether or not to just nod my head and agree that that whatever they're saying but um, you, you know it, it does also depend on someone's background if you spent your life working in Westminster straight out from university at a top university um, and you really only hung around with people like in your social life uh, from, from the Westminster bubble then uh, you are more likely to use language that other people don't really understand. It was my, I felt that my job, you, you know, 
when I was at number 10, people really wanted me to be in charge of people like you lot, Matt, uh, journalists in the lobby, like Rob Hutton as well. Um, and I wanted to be much more in charge of how we communicate to people that you just heard from uh, on the radio a few minutes ago that don't really understand, don't connect with Westminster, could feel that their government might as well be in France as, as, as much as it is in Westminster <laughs> because they feel so disconnected from what's going on. Uh, and I think the more that the government can do that in the future, the better. I mean, if you look at some of the very successful terms before, we might not have liked them, but long-term economic plan, you know, it doesn't take too much genius work to, to think that, well, I kind of understand what they mean. They want, you know, they want to try and be competent with money. They want to try and balance the books. I kind of get that. So some of these phrases are better than others. Uh, Rob, I was just thumbing through uh, your book, Rob's Tots and um, Boffett. It is so funny. I've sort of, I've forgotten how how many of these these phrases that journalists use all the time mean nothing uh, to uh, to most normal people. Um, you know, whether it's blunder, uh, furious row, outrage. Anyway, um, let's not get bogged down there. Uh, Rob, your favourite or least favourite uh, phrases, uh, as well as the jams, we also had Alarm Clock Britain, which I think was a Nick Clegg one oh. dangerously close to the quiet back people for the thick of it. Any, any, yeah. any others which particularly lodge in your mind? Um, well, I think the, the sort of the, the deficit and debt, which you've got on here, deficit. But um, we spent, I mean, again, sort of doing this from an economic point of view, that it was not clear to me that MPs understood the difference between deficit and debt uh, in, the, in the sort of the period about 10 years ago, where that was the only number that mattered. And, uh, and and nobody could uh, could remember what it meant. I, I think that the one nation, you know, it was you're right. It was Ed Miliband sort of reintroduced it to our language. And we all had to look it up because it's a Israeli expression. It really doesn't mean anything. And then it was sort of presented to us as um, as a Boris as something that Boris Johnson had invented. Johnny Mercer um, uh, told the BBC about two or three years ago, and you sort of had to say no, actually. You don't know what this means. You're just using this expression. <laughs> so, uh, but, but no, long term, long term economic plan did did sort of pop up in every speech. Um, we're all in it together. Do you remember that one? Uh, David Cameron yes. was really good at these. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, sort I, I, of loath, loathsome earworm expressions. But we're all in it together. Worked in a sort of we're in a crisis. We're all in it together. I'm not sure we've had one quite like that. I say the NHS, I suppose, worked quite well in the crisis. And get um, Brexit done as a slogan, but it's a sort of yeah, because at least that that does what it says on the tin. Just finally, then James Frayne, your particular favourites or most loathed expressions that the politicians and political Westminster insiders bandy about? Uh, what would be the worst? I think levelling up has to be unquestionably the worst one of recent <laughs> times, given that it's so integral to the government strategy, and yet is so as you as we've heard you know, floats above above people's heads. Um, yes, I think, yeah, absolutely terrible, that one. Needs to go. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 